Welcome to the Contrast Church Podcast. Contrast is located in Grandview, Ohio, with the mission to help people be with Jesus, become like Him, and live out His mission together. For more information on attending our meetings, our missional communities, or giving, visit contrast.church. Alrighty, well, if you have your Bibles, go ahead and get those out. If you need one, we got one in the back. If you have your phone, you're welcome to do that as well. I won't judge you. We're going to be in the NET version. So if you want to keep track of the exact words, we're using NET version. We're going to be in Matthew 25. Uh, we have been taking a nice slow journey through Matthew, and we are at the point in Matthew where we are part six, which is the storm, and that is basically Holy Week. So we're going to be celebrating Holy Week in a couple weeks. Uh, Lindsay's going to talk about it at the end of service a little bit, but just to give it a little plug, Holy Week is the best week of the year as a Christian. I don't know if you knew that. Some of you maybe have experienced Easter and been like, that's really great, but the entire week of Holy Week is, is massively important. So we've created an app to help you interact with each day with readings and challenges, and we also have four in-person gatherings that we're going to be doing, Palm Sunday, Monday, Thursday, Good Friday, and Easter that we want you to be a part of. I will shorten that, and you can go check that out on the app, and Lindsay will talk about that later. But uh, the Holy Week is occurring right now as we're going through the scriptures. We are technically in Tuesday to Wednesday in, in this part of Matthew, and Jesus is answering a question the disciples asked almost a whole chapter ago. They asked two questions, and the second question that they asked that we've been covering is, uh, is basically just, when are, the, when are the end times coming? They ask, when will the sign of your coming and the end of the age be? And Jesus answers this over the next several weeks, so it's been uh, two weeks before this, last week, and then this week we're covering that answer. And the answer, if you already know, is basically a non-answer. It's, you're not going to know when, Right? But the good news is he's going to tell you what to do in the meantime. And in the meantime, the main goal is to just be alert. Be alert or to watch is what other translations say. And that's exactly where we pick up this story. The verse before we get into our passage, which our passage will start in verse 14. The verse before that ends with this. But he, Jesus, replied, I tell you the truth, I do not know you. Therefore, stay alert, because you do not know the day or the hour. Jesus is saying this because these women that were part of this wedding, this was the parable last week, um, were, were not prepared for Jesus. And when Jesus came and grabbed uh, a few of the women to go to this party and this wedding, the other women were not ready, and they had to go get some stuff and come back. And by the time they came back, the door was shut. And it was shut, and they were not allowed to come in because they were not prepared. They were not ready. They were not staying alert. And what we learned from that is as bad as that is for those five women who were not able to get into the wedding, who were shut out, we actually have to have that happen. Because that's the reality of sin in this world, is that when, when the new heaven and new earth is created, it is sinless. There is no sin allowed, which means there is no crying, there is no divorce, there is no thievery, there is no adultery, there is no murder, none of that. All of that is shut. And the hard ramifications that we deal with is there's no middle. It's either you're in or you're out. And for us, this is a sobering reality and this is the last parable of the three that Jesus gives of the example of what it means to stay alert. And this is probably the most uh, relatable for us in the world that we live in today because everything that he's saying now, we have not seen the end times yet. We are still waiting upon them. And so our response to this has massive ramifications on our lives. So we're going to jump right in. We've got a lot of really good stuff to cover. So verse 14 for it is like a man going on a journey. You see how he even started the sentence in relationship to the sentence before. He's like, uh, stay, stay alert, be ready. For it is like a man going on a journey 
who summoned his slaves. Remember, when we talk about slaves, what we mean is servants. It was, this isn't like slavery in America that was hundreds of years ago. This is like uh, servants, which is like a high-end assistant that would do significant things. So he's giving these servants, he's entrusting them, his property to them. So he's going, he's letting them run the whole business and everything like that. They're like the assistant to the regional manager. Uh, to give to, to one he gave five talents, to another two, and to another one, each according to his ability. And then he went on his journey. The one who had received the five talents went off right away and put his money to work and gained five more. In the same way, the one who had two gained two more, but the one who had received one talent went away and dug a hole in the ground and hid his master's money in it. Now stop here. If you're curious about the word talent, your translation might say bags of gold or something similar. Uh, a talent in America, in, in English, in the English uh, language is typically like dancing or singing or, you know, like balancing like, like plates on a stick, right? That's a talent. In this, unfortunately, it doesn't really mean that. It means a, a measurement of money, basically. A talent was uh, arguably 66 pounds of, of money, typically of silver. Could be of gold, but typically it was of silver. And so they put it on a scale, they weigh it. So 66 pounds, I mean, that's pretty heavy. Like a 45-pound barbell is like this big. And, you, I mean, you're thinking another 21 pounds. I mean, that's pretty heavy to pick up. A lot of silver, okay? One talent was equivalent to about 6,000 denarii. And a denarii was what you made in a day, basically. If you were a day laborer, uh, if you worked at McDonald's, you work at a gas station, you go out and you work in the farms, right, today, that's what you make is one denarii. And so it was about 6,000 denarii, which if you're doing the math, it's like 20 years of work without spending any of your money. That's how much it would take you to have one talent, okay? I'm going to modernize this for you to just make it easy, okay? If you work, if you work for $200 a day or $1,000 a week or $52,000 a year, I know that might not be average, but let's just make it simple. That would be $1.2 million for one talent in today's world. So let's just make it really easy, $1 million, Okay? So he gave one guy five million, another guy two million, the last guy one million. That's easy for you to remember, hopefully. That's still a lot of money. Like if today someone was like, I own this company, I'm gonna go on a really long sabbatical to Bermuda. Here's three million dollars, here's five million dollars, whatever, here's ten million. Like you'd be like, wow, that's a lot of money to invest. It's not like a thousand dollars on penny stocks. That's like a lot of money, right? And that's that's what they're given. They're all given uh, amounts of money. Now, what's interesting and what I want to focus on right away is, like, you're going to feel this tension. Why did one guy get five? Why did one guy get two? Why did one guy get one? And it says it was based on their ability. Now, you can easily just think, well, that's not fair, right? You're saying God, like, loves certain people more than others? No. Because what, he's, what you're going to see is he's going to hold everyone to the same standard about what they have been given. The opportunities that they have been given means they might have more responsibility over what they're to do. So let's focus on the reward here. I want to just spend a moment here because... At the end of the day, all of these slaves or servants are given this responsibility. And it's important that we know what the reward is. And we'll see the reward because two of the three did, did a good job. So in verse 19, after a long time, the master of those slaves, which at this point we kind of figure out is God. And the master is representative of God. Came and settled his accounts with them. And the one who had received the five talents came and brought five more, saying, Sir, you entrusted me with five talents, five million dollars. See, I have gained five million more. His master answered, well done, good and faithful slave. You have been faithful in a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Enter into the joy of your master. Now this next one is exactly the same, uh, pretty much from the master. The one who had two talents also came and said, sir, you entrusted two talents to me. 
See, I have gained you two more. His master answered the exact same way. Well done, good and faithful slave. You have been faithful with a few things, and I will put you in charge of many things. Enjoy or enter into the joy of your master. So there's this beauty and honor that's given to these slaves, these servants, who uh, have just proven to be trustworthy with the money that the master gave them, right? Like they, they did something with it. They took a risk. We know the last one dug a hole and put the money in it, and we'll get to him in a second. But the reward for these two guys specifically is two things. The first one, which is actually, I think, better than uh, the second, is, is just simply the master's joy. And, and this is, what it means by this is you just, you just get all of what's mine. You reap all of the benefits of what you have done with my money that I've entrusted to you. You get to be a recipient of all of that. The best way to describe it is let's say that you're a housekeeper in the rich houses of L.A., right? And you are, you are cleaning Ryan Gosling's house, okay? Probably a great house, okay? And you're cleaning it, and while you're in there for the couple hours or how long it takes to clean, you're, you're not, I mean, you're, you're not only touching stuff to clean it. You're not enjoying, you're not sitting on the lazy boy, you're not checking out the pool, you're not, you're not doing any of that. But the difference with this would be that if you were to enjoy the master's things, it would be for Ryan Gosling to say, hey, you know what? You clean my house, you can use whatever you want whenever you want. You want to have a party this weekend? I'm heading out. Why don't you just like throw a party, enjoy the pool, enjoy the heated floor in the, in the bathroom with the warm towels, you know what I'm talking about? You ever, <laughs> heated floors in the bathroom are the best. And it's, enjoy it, right? You want one of my 12 cars to cruise around in, in LA traffic, bumper to bumper? You can do that, okay? Everything that I have is yours. Now, you didn't work for it necessarily. This is just a relational thing that the master decided to give you because you proved to be trustworthy. You, I trust you with all my stuff. So this is a testing ground for what will be given to you not only that you will enjoy the master's joy, which is all of the joy that God experiences in what his world is doing for his sake, you get to experience. You also, weirdly enough, number two, have more work to do, which is, in America, seems like dumb, right? Our job is to work more so that we can eventually work less, right? That is the American dream. Retirement in some nice warm place with a small boat and maybe a condo, right, is the dream, Right? With no health issues, right? That's our dream. So more work, it does not seem like a reward. The problem is, is that we have a, a terribly misunderstood view of work. We, have, we honestly, not only as Americans, but as just Christians, we have very little understanding of what work means. We're going to talk about that, and I'm very excited for it. But before we get into what work means, he says ambiguously, I'll put you in charge of many things. So it, it, it seems a little ambiguous. Like, what does that mean? Like, is he going to be over different areas of the house? Is he going to be uh, over a new type of, of area that the master owns? And what's really cool is we get a clue of the answer that is what he's getting at because the Gospel of Luke, which is another account of Jesus, talks about this story. It has different um, amounts of money, and it's a little bit differently composed, but it's the same idea. And this is what is said to uh, the man who in, in, this, in this story in Luke had 10 minutes, which is like a smaller amount of money, but he was the first servant that got the most. When he gives it back and doubles it, the master says, well done, good slave. Because you have been faithful in a very small matter, you will have authority over 10 cities. Now, I know you're like, that's, that's a weird like, thing to give someone, right? Um, this master must be wealthy because to own several cities is a pretty big deal, right? Imagine if you, someone gave you a million and you made it two million and they're like, hey, uh, we're just, you're gonna start giving you all of Columbus, right? You're like, that's a kind of a big responsibility, right? 
I don't know if I want that. But that's if we look at work as a negative thing or as a life-sucking thing or as a thing that is just toil until we're done with this earth. But that is not how work is to be seen in the eyes of the Lord. Now before we get into work and, and what that means and what's been given to us to be as a steward on this earth, we have to realize that, that it's easy for us to look at these three characters and get a little bit angry about what has been given to one versus others, right? This is just what we call comparison, right? You might have someone in your life who you just want to be more like, and you're mad that God put you in this situation with your life, with your past or your trauma or your family or your lack of height or your, your health conditions or whatever you, you hate about yourself or you wish you didn't have or you wish you had more of, right? There's these people in our lives, I wish I was more charismatic or I wish I was more extroverted or I wish... I, whatever, right? You can name it, and you can always play comparison over all these things. But what we see in the reward is that the reward is exactly uh, based on the person themselves. God has this beautiful laser focus on you and what you've been given and, and treating your reward based on what you've done, not what anyone else has done. If you notice, one guy made $5 million, the other guy made $2 million. Now, they both had smaller amounts at the beginning, but he says the exact same thing to them, Right? He doesn't say, well, you made more money than this guy, so you're better. No, here's what I gave you. Did you do something with it? Great, if you did, you've been faithful, and I'm going to entrust you with more because your integrity is that you care about the work that I want to be done. So for us, we have to realize actually having more money is not always a good thing, right? Like if you are entrusted with one million and I am entrusted with five million, if you lose that one million, it's bad. But if you lose five million, it's more bad, right? So in the words of a prolific rapper, mo money is mo problems. Okay, it's true, and if you have five, you might be like bragging, like, look at all these opportunities I got, but man, you will fall a lot harder. And that's very true. I'll give you one simple illustration that's a little bit more. But if somebody found out that I was embezzling money, right, our whole church would not end well. If one of you is embezzling money, it wouldn't be the end of the world for our church. Now, there's other areas of your life that have high bar and high importance, but I am in a position where... God has given me these opportunities, and the harder I crash, the more it burns. And that's overwhelming sometimes. It's terrifying, right? Like, the way that I live my life, is, it can you know, affect a lot of people, right? Thank God we're not thousands of people, because I would be terrified and be a very anxious person. But, but you guys that are here, I love being a part of your life, and I love caring for you, but it's, it's a big weight. Maybe you have kids, or you want to have lots of kids, right? That's more opportunity, but it's also... Like, you got five, six kids, you might have one of them might turn out so well, right? It's just more work. It's more energy. It's more time. If you make more money, you're going to have more people want your money, right? If you're more charismatic, you're going to run at a speed that is not always sustainable. It doesn't, we, we have to care less about what we got or have been given to use and more about what we do with it. And that's how we have to look at this parable. What have we been given and are we going to do something with it? And so the, the only way that we figure out what to do with this opportunity is to ask two questions. So if, if God has given you money right now, let's just use the sense of money, but you can think about it as like talents or giftings or personality or whatever. If God has given you money, how do you know what to do with it? You have to answer two questions. The first one is, what is your purpose? That's a very large question, very ontological, like what, is, what are we here for on earth, right? What is our purpose? But we know that they, they, he gave each based on their abilities. So there's some reality of what we do on earth matters, and it matters for the end times. It matters for the future, for the kingdom, for heaven, right? So let's jump to the beginning of your Bible. I'm actually going to have you turn there because it's the first page of your Bible. Genesis 1. 
So if you turn all the way back and you get past the table of contents and a little bit of foreword for whatever translation, Genesis 1, the first page of the Bible. This is the creation story. And I'm going to show you what our original calling was. This is called our cultural mandate, is what theologians call it. And this is what our, our call is on earth. Verse 26 of chapter 1. Then God said, Let us make humankind in our image after our likeness. He's referring to himself as the Trinity, Holy Father, Son, Holy Spirit. So that they may what? Rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air, over the cattle and over all the earth and over all the creatures that move on the earth. Then skip down to verse 28. Just skip one verse. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and every creature that moves on the ground. You can tell those verses are a little bit redundant, right? Because he's repeating this reality. Now, this is before, this is just in this creation idea. It's before the garden, before the sin has fallen and sin's curse for, for men was hard toil, like hard work. The soil would be hard, right? This is before all of that. You have been given work to do. And it's two things, and I'm just going to briefly cover them. The first one is to make a family. Now, this doesn't always mean literally, like, go procreate, right? But it means to make family on earth. Family and community is the way in which God has wired us. We are to be in community with others. So making a family for you, if you're married, might literally mean making babies. But it might also mean adopting or fostering or bringing people into your nuclear family with a structure of love and community and safety. That's exactly what we're doing in Fostering Love, right? Just these small glimpses that we can be family to others who need family. So whether you've chosen to be single because of where you're at in your life or you're, you're feeling pretty hopeless being single or even if you're married, like there's, there's ways that you are called to make a family, to make meaningful relationships, whether you are a great uncle or a great aunt or a great foster parent or a great adoptive parent or a great biological parent or just a great spouse. That is the first thing that we are called to do, to make a family and to, to, make, and to make that in such a way that it rules the earth, that it takes care of the earth. The second one then is to work, which is just wild. We typically think of work, some of us love our work, but we think of the word work as a negative thing. Ah, I got to go to work. We have to work. Work is toil. Work is hard. Work is energy spent that I would probably rather being on vacation, right? Like that's the reality. Work is not as fun as other things, but it's something I kind of have to do. But work here is, is ingrained into the DNA of humanity in the way the world is to be. And we know this because this is the first calling. And then go to Genesis 2. Just flip the page. Go to Genesis 2 and verse 15. Now that God had given the Garden of Eden, he puts man in it in verse 15. The Lord God took the man. He placed him in the orchard in Eden to care for it and maintain it. So this is pre-sin, all right? He put Adam in the garden with Eve to care for it and maintain it. The, 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 the words here that he uses to describe this Care for is the Hebrew word abad, which is best translated worshipful service. How do, you, how do you worshipfully serve trees? Well, you do, apparently, right? The same way that you worshipfully service giving someone's car an oil change or handing their food as a Uber Eats driver or curing cancer or writing a paper or scooping ice cream, believe it or not, right? Everything that we do is to be in line with worshipful service for the world that God wants to create. Remember, this is pre-sin. Sin has not hit yet. Okay? That was our goal. So had sin never hit, the garden, Adam and Eve would still be working. Right? Like work has always been a part of our 
created being. It's to co-labor. We're not employees. We are co-laborers with God. God says, here's the garden. I've created this aspect. I want you to go own it. I want you to go name it. I want you to create culture. That's why it's called the cultural mandate because culture, we think of it as like this hip word in a startup. Like, I'm just trying to have really cool culture, work culture, you know, and they have like trendy signs and like free food and all this stuff, right? Culture, though, is just the environment that you're around. It affects you. So as a church, we have what we call DNA points. We have 10 of them, and they are culture-creating points. So one of, the, one of them, the first one, is we believe prayer is of utmost importance. And so that means that if you are at our church long enough, you should grab that. It should just like, be in your, in your life. People should be praying for you. Should be, people should be caring about the value of prayer. We should be praying in what we do, right, that we believe prayer is of utmost importance. And you catch that culture being around it. That is the very same thing that, that Adam and Eve are called to do. But the words they're given, and the, the way I explain them, seem like the world is a little bit wild, subdue, rule, as if there's this, there's this wildness to the world. And I actually believe that would be very true. If you think about just the world in general, we feel pretty safe. We have, we have houses and buildings that keep big animals out. But if you ever watch the show Alone, you ever watch that show? They like send all these expert survivalists out in the woods, and they're by themselves just completely... I watched the one season where they're up in this lake with like Grizzly Bear Lake or whatever, and there's like several times throughout the season where a grizzly bear just walks on by. And guess what? If that grizzly bear wants to eat you, it's going to eat you. Like, you know, you don't, then they have like a bow, and they're not even really allowed to shoot them. So it's like, what are you supposed to do? I don't know. Let it, let it eat you. But that, like, the world is wild, and we, are, we have to be together to survive. The best people in alone survive maybe three months, and that's with luck. They find one deer, they trap a bunny that something else doesn't eat, right? Like, it's, it's, you watch it, it's just kind of like luck. They have to do stuff, but at the end of the day, it's so much harder alone. If they put all 10 of those people together, my gosh, they'd have a city there, but they'd still be there. They'd still be there. Because the, the, we are better together, and so when we subdue and we rule, he gives us a better understanding of this, this orchard, and, and what Eden means in Hebrew is delight. It is, I've created this space for you to delight and to work in and to take care of, in the, the, the last word, shamar, which means to maintain or tend or exercise great care, it is, is to, 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 to just care for it, right? So I know that we typically take this and we think like agrarian. We're like, okay, like we need to be nice to our soil. We need to eat organic and not put GMOs and things. And, and it's more than just food. It's, it's like the, the earth, which is full of people, which is full of resources and animals and all of these things. And so what one commentator says is he, he basically this, this whole reality of what is our purpose, he argues is that the point of this is made clear that physical labor is not a consequence of sin. Toil and hard work, yes, things are harder, but work enters the picture before sin does. And even if man had never sinned, he would still be working. So he says Eden then is not a paradise in which a man passes his time in idyllic and interrupted bliss with absolutely no demands on his daily schedule. No, he has a purpose He's a co-laborer. He has work to do. He has work to do. So why does this matter, Trey? Why does my purpose matter? Because your purpose has not changed. The circumstances that you're in have changed. It's hard. There's toil. There's people that are manipulative. There's lots of corruption. You have to balance working with a company that might do things that are not legal or okay. You might have to deal with a work culture that's difficult. You might have to deal with companies that are abusing the world and people and earth. I mean, half the clothes we wear have been from slave labor, right? It's a very convicting thing to think about. Like we, so, so why does that matter? Because Jesus cares. He cares about the beginning, he cares about the middle, and he cares about the end. And the beginning was we were created to work. 
in a garden. And the end is we are created to work in a garden city. And that's what John Mark Homer, he writes a book called Garden City. That's his whole argument. The thesis of the book is that the garden was never supposed to stay a garden. It was supposed to be built into a city of flourishing, a city of culture. That, and when we see in Revelation, when we go to heaven, right, which we typically think is like up in the clouds with these pearly gates, right, it is actually heaven until, until God destroys the earth of sin and we come back and we rebuild, basically, this new heaven and new earth. That's what, that's what we're getting at in Revelation. And we are a part of rebuilding and building that beautiful city. So what we're doing now is practicing for heaven. And so this whole parable, Jesus is actually, I think, getting at this reality of it doesn't matter when the end comes because what it matters is are you practicing for heaven? When you get to heaven and the new earth comes and we establish that and you co-labor with that, are you going to want to work with it? Are you going to want to be a part of it? If you've been a bum your whole life, you don't get to heaven and just get to be a bum again. A lot of us have this dream like, oh, heaven's going to be great. I'm going to go up there and I'm going to have all my best buds and I'm just going to play golf every day. <laughs> You're like, I'm not going to do anything. I'm just going to, or some of you are like, I'm going to sit on the couch and watch endless episodes of The Office with Cheetos and a milkshake. And I'll never have physical ramifications of only eating that, right? That's like heaven to you. And I'm, I'm just telling you, you're not going to like heaven very much if that's, if that's your dream. Because heaven is meaningful work with the creator without any of the bad. That's what it is. So Jesus is saying, practice now. If you're lazy now, it's going to be bad for you. And the end of this parable is very haunting. Because he says, some of you won't even make it because of the behavior and the trust, the lack of trust and relationship that you're putting in my, in my um, will. So as we look at heaven, if we think about it like that, just for a second, bring that to our lives now. This parable, has nothing has changed except we talked about the destruction of the temple and all that. But nothing has changed. The end times, as, we, as far as I know, it could happen tomorrow, today. 10 years from now, 1,000 years from now, 10,000 years from now, I don't know, but we're still waiting. We still need to be aware. We still need to watch. Here's the thing. What do we do then? What's our purpose? Our purpose is still the same. We still have the same mission. The only difference is we have different resources. We all have different talents and gifts. Talents, no pun intended, because talents is money and also, you know, we have both, right? We have money and resources. We also have literal talents God has given us to build the culture, to build culture that will be perfected in the new earth. So that's our, that's our goal. That doesn't change. Okay? So the one who has $5 million doubled his investment. He made heaven on earth through his investment. The man with $2 million did the exact same thing. With what has been given to them, they were faithful with it, and they didn't worry about the other people. They just followed the master's will. Okay? So now let's talk about the one who had $1 million and buries it in the ground because he will answer the second question. The second question is, do I trust and do I know the purpose giver? So the first one, do I know my purpose? Like, what is work to me? What does that mean in light of me being on the earth, right? The second one is, do we trust and know the purpose giver? This is how we know this question is important, because this man fails. Verse 24, then the one who had received the one talent came, because he had dug it in the hole. He said, sir, I knew that you were a hard man, harvesting where you did not sow, and gathering where you did not scatter seed, and so I was afraid. I went and I hid your talent in the ground. See, you have back what is yours. This, this, this slave has done t- basically three things wrong that are all associated. The first one, and let, let's, just, let's just clear the slate here. At this time in the world, digging your money in the ground was the safest option. Still kind of is today. Like, if you're like, I'm going to put this under my mattress. I don't trust the banks. You know, this one isn't FDIC insured, whatever. Like, sure, burying your money, 
Okay, it's a time-old treasure. People will be hunting for it in thousands of years, but it's not a bad idea. Okay, if you don't want to lose your money, you hide it in the ground. Okay, I'll give him that. But the problem is his reasoning for why he did it. And his reasoning immediately, we see, is that he, he, doesn't, uh, he doesn't trust or understand or value the posture and priorities of the master. He says, I know you're a hard man, and, and I don't know, I just was, I was afraid. And so his fear, not understanding the true heart of the master, just seeing his behavior, he doesn't understand the heart of the master and what the master's trying to do. He blames the master for his inability to do what he was called to do. Anybody ever done that? Well, God let this happen to me, so I don't owe him anything. He owes me. I suffered, and I don't understand why he allowed it. And so, I mean, he's just going to need to make it up, or I guess I'm just going to keep doing my thing. That does not go over very well with this guy. Because then what happens is he lives in fear, right? And his fear is what motivates him to not do anything, which is the third part, which is he's just lazy. He's just lazy. If I gave gave each of you a million dollars... And I said, I'm going to come back in 10 years, invest this money, that's your job. What is the easiest thing to do? Take the money that day, bury it in the ground, and forget about it. Put a little stick in the ground so you know 20 paces off the oak tree, whatever, and then be done with it. The other people, though, what are they doing? They are actively working, right? They're probably trying to make financial calls with people who are experts. They're trying to read the market. They're trying to figure out... Should we do some housing, some assets, some stock? Should we do, like, all these type of things? They're researching. They're in community. They're developing. They're spending their time. In those 10 years, there's consistent conversations. There, how's the money doing? Oh, the market crash. Oh, that's not good. How do we, right? There's a care, a purpose to it. Putting the money in the ground was fear-motivated, fear but laziness is another aspect. I don't really want to do this work, right? I don't really believe that that... Like, what I'm doing actually matters that much. And especially knowing, ah, oh, this master is kind of a serious guy. It might be better for me to just skate, skate by and just give back what he gave me, right? It's lazy. And here's the thing at the end of the day. It, it doesn't require any relationship. Now, this is reading between the lines, so don't over-spiritualize this. But if this, man, if this man goes away, if I give you this money and I say, hey, I'm going to go to Europe for a year or whatever, right? Like, I trust you to manage this money. It would, be, it would be rare of you to not, if you really cared, to call people, to ask for advice. Maybe I would say, yeah, you can call me every once in a while if you want, or maybe I'd say no. But either way, you are, you are communicating with people about your opportunity and what to do with it, right? You are helping others help you. This man took it on himself selfishly. He did not let anybody else in. He hid the money. He only he knew where it was. Here's the thing. What happens if he dies before the master comes back? Where's the money? No one knows. He squandered all of the resources that God had been given. He was banking on the fact that the master would come back in time and also wouldn't care that he did nothing with it. And the master is livid because the master desires attempt more than success. This is just true in life. God wants us to have the desire to make the world like he wants it, but we're not in charge of the results. And you know this if you're a financial planner. Like, no, the one number one rule of the stock market is no one knows where it's going, up, down, or sideways. No one knows. You have informed decisions, hypotheses, you read charts and graphs and movement and all this stuff, but no one fully knows. In the same way, when you invest this money, you're taking a risk. The master knows you're taking a risk. And so he doesn't, I mean, yeah, he wants to make money, right? He wants product to be moved, right? He wants to see success in that way. But I, I would argue that if this one talent guy, this $1 million guy, came and said, hey, I, I tried all these things, I trusted all these people, I use a bunch of your buddies and associates, and I tried to move it, and I lost $100,000. I got $900 back, you know, and, and, and 
I truly believe the master would be less angry at him for trying and taking the risk and trusting in, in, just, in just using these opportunities than not doing anything with it at all. Because here's why. You don't know the results. You don't. The only way you'll know is if you invest, is if you take the risk and if you do something. If you don't take an opportunity, you will know for sure the results. And the results are this. Verse 26, the master answered, evil and lazy slaves. So you knew that I harvested where I didn't sow and gather where I didn't scatter. Meaning you know, you know like what I care about and how I am. Then you should have deposited my money with the bankers. And on my return, I would have at least received my money back with interest. Therefore, take that talent from him and give it to the one who has ten. For the one who has been given more, and he will have more than enough. But the one who does not have, even what he has will be taken from him. And throw that worthless slave into the outer darkness, where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. That's the same illustration Jesus used countless times in the last chapter. Weeping and gnashing of teeth. It's the idea of hell, separation from God, not wanting to do anything with him. The confusing part of that verse is, he says in verse 29, the one who does not have... Even what he has will be taken from him. He doesn't have anything. Why are we taken from him? Because what, he ha- what he's talking about is, is the, the belief and ability in trusting the purpose giver. That's what he has to have. The resources are, are not the importance. The importance is, do you trust me and the opportunities that I'm giving you? And will you step into them? If you don't, you don't have. And therefore, whatever you got on the side is gone. Right? That's the priority. Do you desire and are you attempting what I'm calling you into. Don't worry about the success. Don't worry about the money. Are you stepping into it? One commentator uh, commented that this is what we call safety-first Christianity. Right? It's motivated by fear, laziness, comfort. i got too many things going on. I'm just going to bury it. I don't have to worry about it. Right? Which is funny because he could have, yeah, he just could have put it in like a high-yield savings account would have made a little bit of money off it. Who knows? And in 500 years, if God came back, he would have quite a bit of money on a high interest, uh, high yield savings account. So, so he doesn't do anything, and this is what we call safety first Christian. It's, it's the idea that safety is the lens at which I look through what Jesus is calling me to do instead of an important priority after what Jesus is calling me to do. We let safety be the forefront of the way that we see things. There was a fascinating... Um, stat about how the world, or specifically the U.S., sorry, the U.S., over the last 40 years, everybody thinks it's much more dangerous and much worse than it was 40 years ago. It's actually statistically not true. The problem is, is we see every murder and every killing and every bad thing and every thief on, online. We see it all the time. And so we think this world is in shambles and it's bad, and it is bad. It's been bad for thousands of years. There's sin, right? It's just the way it is. But it, the people, everybody thinks the world is worse, right? But it's, it's, it's actually not, statistically, judging on certain stats, and I'd love to share them with you at some point. But so, so what do we do? Do we just say, well, you know, it's dangerous out there. I just need to, like, hide, close my doors and hide. No. He's saying, look, take the risk. Do you trust and do you know the heart of the purpose giver of the creator? Do you truly know me? This, this uh, guy had the million was so selfish that he blames the master for his inability to do anything. I mean, it's just, it's, it, it's, real, it's real crazy that he did that. I mean, I'm, I'm like, wow, he really went at the master there. And so as we close, I want to wrap up with this. I want to answer this question for you that I think is going to be incredibly applicable to you now and the rest of your life, honestly, is how do you steward your abilities and your opportunities that are given to you? How do you do it well? And I would say regardless of how many you get, right? Because some of us are just going to get more than others, and that's fine. 
I'm, I'm happy that God loves all of us, but he treats all of us differently. If you're a parent or you were a kid with other siblings, you would probably agree. Like, you needed a little bit different parenting than your brother or your sister. They were different. They had different needs. It's easy to be jealous sometimes, but that's actually good parenting, parenting each kid in specific ways, right? God gives us specific opportunities and abilities. So here's the five things I'm just going to boil down practically, and I want you to just marinate on. The first one, which is the most important one, and we see it in this passage, is be hungry. Are you hungry? Do you have urgency? When I'm hungry, I will do whatever I can to get some food. Like, I'm, like, thinking about it. It's on my mind. I'm out salivating. I'm like, I need to eat. I get hangry, right? Or am I hungry? Because urgency is massively important, and it was the characteristic of the two who made money. What do they do? They got the money. What does it say? They went off right away. Right away. Oh, my gosh. I got this. What a blessing like that, that God has trusted me with this. What am I going to do with it? And you leverage all your life. Do I get an education? Do I go move here? Do I do this? Do I go that? Do I learn a new language? Do I give this money away? Right? Everything in your life changes because you're hungry and you have urgency because here's the thing you're not going to have forever. Your neighbor might move away before you have one conversation with them. You might lose your job. Heaven forbid, you might make less money in the future. That's not an American value, right? No, you make more as you get older, Trey. That's how it works. What if you make less money? What if you have a family with disabilities, right? And you just have no margin anymore. What if you have a disability? What if you get sick? What if you don't live to be 84 and a half? What if things in our lives do not occur the way they think that we think they will? So be hungry. Because if Jesus comes tomorrow, or he comes in 100 years, you better be living the same way that you should, faithful to your opportunities. The second one is knowing God deeply. And this comes out of the idea that the man with a million blamed God for the ways that had, things had happened, but not knowing the true heart and intent of God. God is ruthlessly fighting for your heart. And he is willing to do whatever he can to give you his relationship with you. I mean, that's the point of salvation, right? It's us not having to earn it, it's given freely to us. We just have to accept it, right? And he, he's, re, he's relentless, and the man was too afraid of some of the things that he's seen that he couldn't trust in the heart of the God and trust in the purpose giver. And so if you don't know God, if you have an image of God and an image of God that doesn't affect you and doesn't make you go, mm, wow, like that's hard. That's a hard thing to, to stomach, right? You're probably creating your own God. Your, your God is one who you don't have any qualms with, Right? The true God is one who calls you into things that are uncomfortable, that are hard, that might elicit suffering. Are you willing to know God deeply and to be obedient to what he calls you to? Third one, humble yourself with wisdom and discernment. We have the Holy Spirit. Jesus says, I have an advocate I'm sending. He's much greater than I, and he is dwelling within your soul if you believe in me. The Holy Spirit is with you, guides you in truth. And then the other thing that Jesus gives us, he ascends to heaven, he gives us the Spirit, and then he has this beautiful illustration called his body. Christ's body, which is the church, which is the community of believers. I've told you this before. I don't trust lone wolves. I'm sorry. If you, if you don't have any accountability or community in your life, I don't trust you. I won't hire you. I won't let you watch my kids. I, won't, I don't trust you because I don't trust anyone that is not around, allowed, to, uh, allowed to be around other people that helps you with your blind spots, that helps you push you towards Christ. This is so important. And I, I, I said, I don't want to read in between the lines, but these two guys who went off right away and figured out how to invest, they had to talk to other people. You, I mean, they didn't just like go on a website and put it all in Dogecoin on their own, right? They talked to other planners. They, they maybe went to some different 
They read some articles. They talked to some professionals, right? They figured out where should we put this money? Should we lend it to this guy? Is this guy credible? Does this guy have a proven track record, right? There's wisdom and discernment in making decisions. So maybe for you, the opportunity with your unchurched friend that's incredibly aggressive and anti-Christian is not to put a political yard sign in their yard that says, you know, Christ is the way. Maybe that's not the best tactic. But I tell you, doing nothing is also not good. So wisdom, discernment, in community, trusting the Spirit's convictions. I had a conviction a couple days ago. I've been praying for this guy in my life every day. It's been my goal uh, for the past like, couple months and his family. And uh, they've, uh, they've been close to us. And I, mean, I was praying and I texted them and said, hey, I'm praying for you. Is there anything that I can be praying for specifically? It's not your thing. I totally get it. He's agnostic. I didn't want to offend him. I was like, but I'm praying for you. You know, three hours go by, and I was praying. I prayed for him. And uh, I don't want to give away too many details, but I was just praying for his, his job and his, and, and his family and, and just I'd see some American dream aspects that I, I think he was running towards that I was nervous of. And, and three hours later, he, says, he, he texts back, and, you know, and he's like, oh, family's good and all that. And he says, your prayers must have worked before you asked them because he didn't realize that I was praying before all this. So I just had one of the best days of my life. I just got a new job. And I get to stay where I am, and I get to be around my family more, and I'm just really thankful. I mean, it, just this small Holy Spirit, hey, you need to pray. You need to pray for him about this. I just did it. I sat in my office. I did it. I'm just going to reach out and see if, just, I was like hesitant, like, ah, we'll see if there's something else. No, that was it. And I did it, and there you go. It's, it's these things that we do. They're not massive. They're little, but the little things grow. And the more faithful you are, the more, the more you'll see the Spirit start to call you into things You're building trustworthiness, responsibility of what God's given you. The fourth one is the external version. Purge fear and comparison. Stop looking at what other people are given. If you're given a half a million, don't whine about it. It's actually a lot less of a burden than the person who has five million or ten million, right? Be faithful with what God has given you. He's looking at you and he's judging you. He's not not looking at everyone else. Well, so-and-so made five and you only made two. Were you faithful to what I've given you? If you're an introvert, maybe you won't have 600 friends cool. That's okay. God's like, that's fine. Are you going to have deep, meaningful relationships with the people you have? Are you using that as a crux to hide from people, right? It's, are you doing what you need to be doing with what God has created and given you? And the last one, which is what we're going to hit on hard next week, is number five. Just go do something. (laughs) I don't know how else to describe that. If you are an intellectual, obese Christian, and you just want to know everything, and you don't do anything, you are not a Christian, and, and I, I, would, I encourage you, if you just bury doing something and opportunities, the end result for you, I, I'm not the one who makes the decision, but it doesn't look good. Take the opportunities and take the risk. Take the risk. Do you know your purpose? Do you trust and know the purpose giver? And so as we invite the band up, here, here's why this all matters. Because at the end of the day, it's like, why, why do opportunities matter? I mean, if I trust in Jesus and, like, I'm going to go to heaven, can I just bury that, right? Like, you raise your hand, you bury it in the ground and say, I'm going to keep living my life. When I die, I'll go to heaven, right? But I just told you, heaven's not really what you think it is. Like, you got work to do in heaven. Let's practice now, right? What's Jesus' first line of his prayer in Matthew, uh, in the Sermon on the Mount? It is, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come. The kingdom come now. Oh, so we're supposed to be doing this now. And so here's two reasons why this matters so much. I'll just shorten them. The first one and the most important one is I don't know about you, but I want to share in the master's joy. I think about heaven. I know a lot of people have funny, funny like, oh, this is what my heaven would look like and whatever. But here's why I think heaven would be awesome. I get up there, 
and God and I have a nice debrief session for a few hours over my whole life, right? And then he sets me down in this fire pit courtyard area. It's in Arizona. The weather's nice. There's no mosquitoes. And I'm sitting there with all these people. And some of them I recognize. Some of them I have no clue who they are. And God says, these are all the people that your opportunities have helped come to heaven. And some of them you don't even know. And he just, she just goes through every person. And he just says, this person was someone who you gave $360 to in Guatemala, who's a student who learned about the love of Jesus, who accepted him. And now he is a teacher in Guatemala City, and he died, and he's here with you. And this person over here, this is your best friend who you've been praying for for 10 years. You know him pretty well, don't you? Yeah. And, and you were the sixth person to share the gospel with him. And on the 15th person, he finally accepted it. And here he is because you were part of that journey. And you just get to, you just get to revel in, 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 in God's joy for all these people being here. And, and the opposite is burying your money in the ground and sitting there. And God just saying, hey, like, you had opportunities, and you're just going to sit at the fire pit alone. Like that, that, that doesn't sound like heaven to me, does it? Because it's not heaven. That is what we are, are fighting for. Is I want to share in the master's joy. I want him to be able to say, pull up my mint over my whole life. Say, here's your budget. Look at all this money you gave away. Look at these things that happened. Look at this school that was built. Look at this house that was built. Look at this family that you bought Uber Eats for when they had a baby and they just couldn't believe that someone did that. And now they're going to church and they accept it and now they're baptized and their family's baptized and generations and generations and generations. This is the stuff. This is the happiness and the joy that we fight for, is we want to share in the master's joy. And the last thing to do, and this is just simple, and this is what I hope convicts you, is I just want to do what Jesus tells me to do. It's that simple. Next week, he tells me to love the lost. He tells me to love the least. He tells me to love the orphan. He tells me to visit people in prison. He tells me to do all these things. I just want to do those things. He did them for me, and he's given me opportunity to do them as well. So as we transition into a time of formation, I want us to just to process this. I want us to process it in our lives, a vision for our life, a purpose for our life. And I would encourage you, if there's any bit of opportunity that you've been shirking, that you've been hiding, that you've been burying, maybe your faith has been buried your whole life, and you're like, I need to cultivate this. There's people in the back who would love to pray for you through that. Maybe you need to take the bread and cup as a reminder of the sacrifice that Jesus has done to free you from the sin and toil of, of life for the work that matters in the kingdom. We also have giving as an opportunity of worship and obedience as well. And uh, just reflect.